The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Psalm 22, if you didn't already. And uh, as you're getting there, so we're going to look at verses 11 through 21 today. And as I told you last week, it's really, it's a beautiful thing for us to find ourselves in this psalm leading up to Easter weekend, because it is one of, if not the most striking prophetic foreshadowings of the death, and as we're going to see next week, also the resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah. So it's really fitting for us to spend time in this psalm leading up to this celebration of Easter. I know that maybe some of you might be thinking, and, and I've even I've heard it said before. Well, shouldn't we shouldn't we be thinking about the death and, and resurrection of Jesus all year long? Like, why is Easter so special? And you know, the first thing I want to say is trust and believe in this. You'll never hear an argument out of me against keeping our minds and hearts soaked in the reality of the gospel all year long. Amen. I'm not going to argue on that. I'm I'm 100% for that. However. I do think we see a pattern of God instituting yearly commemorations and observances to really hone in and refocus our hearts and minds on important things. Because if we're honest with ourselves and humble, sometimes we aren't that dialed in and focused on important things. Yeah, okay, good. And and few of you know that about yourself as well. Hopefully the rest of you will learn it. Amen. Uh, So, you know, what what am I talking about? Well, we saw this with the institution of the Passover celebration, right? Every year, commanded by God to be kept by his people. And, you know, the Lord built our solar system in such a way that we have a 365-day year. We have months and weeks. We have seasons. There's a rhythm woven into creation. And, And there's value in marking things on the calendar in a rhythmic way to help us really to dial in and to remember and celebrate the greatness of what God has done. And so yes, let's be mindful and live out of the beauty of the gospel all year long, but let's also not uh, overlook the opportunity as we come into this Easter weekend to really set our focus. And, and for us, friends, I mean, you know, Christmas is cool, and don't get me wrong, like I, I look forward to Advent season every year, but, but this time of year, like Good Friday, where we remember the sacrificial death of our Savior and Easter, friends, Resurrection Sunday. It's, it's the culmination of God's perfect plan of redemption when our King conquered death so that we could have eternal life. I mean, come on, man, that, that's our day. That's, that's the one. And so I hope anticipation, excitement is, is being built in you as we come up to Easter weekend and uh, I know it is for me, because for me, friends, I'm not, I'm not over the gospel yet. I hope you aren't either. I don't ever want to get there. I'm not over it. Because the, the world, man, it's getting wilder and wilder. And I'm going to tell you something. You know, I've got 99 problems, and I know you do too, but, but God's saving and God making a way to save is not one of them. That one's solved. That's not a problem. He already brought the solution. And I'm real thankful I don't have to worry about that. Because there's enough other stuff to worry about, but that's set. Amen? 
One of my problems is not having a God who can't save, that's for sure. Now, as I told you last week, it's, it's really pretty hard to peg. We're moving into Psalm 22 now. It's really hard to peg this psalm to any event in David's life. So what's happening here? Well, he might be poetically describing how he feels in the midst of some trial as far as what he knows is happening. But even if that's the case, he is definitely prophetically pointing forward to Jesus. And that becomes even more clear in the verses that we're going to read today than it was last week. And, and this, this that we're going to read today, it really very much, it looks like, it sounds like, it reads like the silent prayers of our Savior as he hung upon the cross. And so I'm asking you to, to read this with me. And as we're working through it, you know, let's keep in mind this simple truth. That this, what he experienced Man, this, this is for me. It's not a, it's not a deep or revolutionary, uh, some kind of revelation or, or, or truth that you haven't probably thought of before, but to Sister Jay's point this morning, man, sometimes it's, it's, the, it's reflecting upon the basics. Again, with renewed passion, it's really what we need. Those are the anchors for our soul. Amen? All right, so let's read Psalm 22, 11 through 21. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, right off the bat, I want to address something that it could be a hurdle for some, but I know also in doing this, I'm going to disappoint others. Okay? Here's what I need to know. Do I have anybody in here reading from a 1611 King James version of the Bible? Anybody in here got a King James? All right. Amen. Praise God. All right, so you, you're, gonna, you're ahead of the rest of the class, but I'm going to read this out loud. This, this has created an issue. I'm going to read you verse 21 that we just read, but I'm going to read this from the good old King Jimmy. All right, you ready? <laughs> verse 21, Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. <laughs> That's how the King James lays this out, okay? Um, I... <laughs> This is the true story. I had, now, I don't know if they were messing with me, but I had an adult tell me one time they believed in unicorns because they're in the Bible. And uh, I just want you to know that that approach right there is, is it's basically the same as Bart Simpson saying he can say any of the cuss words he finds in the Bible. Okay? Anybody remember that episode? It's like, if it's in the Bible, I can say that cuss word. It's, it's kind of the same level of, of thinking through how we're approaching this. Okay? So here's the thing. Uh, and, and, and why am I going to take a minute on this? Because genuinely, there are those from like the, the TTTL and the like who 
point to this as evidence that the Bible shouldn't be trusted. Well, the Bible, look, talking about unicorns, it's a fantasy book. Uh, I see some blanks there. The TTTL is the TikTok Theology League. I don't know if you're aware <laughs> that that's a thing, but it is. Um, I named them. I don't know if they're going to take the name, but uh, I think they should. Uh, so here's the deal. All right, here's what I want you to know. Okay, guys, if, if you're going to attack the Bible, this, this attack is kind of lazy, all right? There's, there's no way possible that any of the Bible writers were talking about my little pony-looking creatures where the King James used the word unicorns, okay? That's not possible. And, and I want to say, I know that's heartbreaking for some of you because you really want unicorns to be real. I get that, but I need to break your heart today. That's not the deal. How? Why am I saying that? Well, the, the clearest Bottom line here is, is this, all right? Psalm 22 and much of the other Old Testament, there's a few other places where the King James will render this unicorns uh, throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures. But Psalm 22 in particular, written 1,000 BC, okay? 1,000 BC, so that's 1,000 years before the time of Christ. The first description we have anywhere of what we would now understand to be kind of the mythical unicorn, the first inkling of that you ever see was by a Greek historian in 400 BC. And he was basically, he was writing about India and most of the information he was getting was from spice traders. And so they came with these stories of this kind of mythical creature. If you drink out of its horn, it'll heal stuff. And, you know, just, but basically that's where the beginning of the legend that we now associate with unicorns came. Okay, but here's what I'm saying. This was written 1,000 BC. The first we ever see modern-day myth of the unicorn is 400 BC. You understand what I'm saying? It can't, it can't be that that's what David was talking about. All right, that's kind of the clearest point. But the Hebrew word here that gets translated unicorns or, or wild oxen, it basically means a one-horned animal. Uh, most scholars think it's a reference to what's known as an auroch, which sounds like a very tough animal, uh, but, and it was, uh, and that's an extinct kind of wild ox, and you know, information is scant. We're talking about a really long time ago here. They, they either had one horn or their, their horns were, were of such symmetry that like, when you looked at it from the side profile, it looked like one horn, okay? Um, and when the Bible was translated into Latin, Okay, the word unicornis, and that happened about 580. The, the word unicornis was used for this one-horned animal, which also means one-horned animal. Okay, And then we ended up with the word unicorn kind of being used to describe the one-horned horse of legend in general folklore. Okay, So the NASB and other translations, they've gone ahead and, and put wild ox in there in place of unicorn. Um, but that's, and that's also supported by the text itself because there's, there's a mere imagery we see in, in the poetic framing of the psalm. So let me just show you that real quick. I know I'm taking a minute on this, but, but I'm dead serious, man. Here's, here's what you need to know. There are people that have discounted the validity of the scriptures because they heard there's unicorns in the Bible, okay? So I don't expect you to be able to spout all of this off, but I, I want you to at least know uh, it's, that's not a reasonable thing to do. That's not a reasonable assertion uh, and, and, and then maybe, you know, you either listen back to this or study it some more yourself. But man, I, it'd just be a shame if someone stayed away from Jesus because they thought the Bible was talking about my little pony. Don't you think? I think that, that'd be a shame. Amen. Okay. So we're taking a second on it because this is actually fairly common. Um, 
So I'm, I'm talking about this poetic imagery. There's, there's this kind of mirroring that happens. So if you look at 11 through 15, okay, um, you see this order of animals. And, and what is it? Well, it says bulls and then lion and then dogs. Okay, that's kind of the beginning of what we read today. He mentions the bulls of Bashan, the roaring of the lion, and then these, the dogs, right? But then in 20 and 21, we see the, the mirror of that, okay? And that's a common practice in Hebrew poetry to kind of take the thing and invert it. And, and, and so we know, we know that happened all the time, and that's really what looks like happening here. And so at the back half in verses 20 and 21, he says dog, lion, and then this word, ram, basically, is what it comes out to in, in the Hebrew, and so he goes, bulls, lion, dog, dog, lions, one-horned horses? Probably not. Probably something cattle-like, right? <laughs> so, amen. All right. Uh, and I can understand, genuinely, I can understand people being thrown off by the unicorn thing in, in the King James before the internet, but genuinely, like 10 minutes of work on the Google machine, you can, you can find all this stuff that I've told you. It's, it's not, like, hard, Okay. Uh, all right, so what, the other thing I wanted to do, now I feel like I know that we can work through the rest of this sermon and you won't be sitting there wondering about or imagining unicorns the entire time. So it was important to just handle that. So now we can work on the text, okay? You guys ready? Let's do it. Amen. Back to verse 11. Let's go, team. What does he say? Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And here's what I want to kind of lay out, this, this is the beginning of what very much seems to be a prophetic pointing to, to the, what Jesus went through on the cross. And this, like I said before, this reads like what could have been his inner prayers and, and contemplations as he was enduring that torture. And, and so what I want you to know going into this is we're, we're going to be a bit light on application today and heavy on just taking in slowly and carefully how incredible it is that this psalm was written roughly a thousand years before Jesus was hung on a Roman cross. And to, to understand that the Romans got their practice of crucifixion from the Persians and, and that the development of this form of torture, wasn't, it was much later, hundreds of years after this was written. And yet we have this description very much. Sounds like crucifixion. So what, how, well, how do we explain that? I, I, want us, I want us to be enamored again with the prophetic element of what God is doing here. It should help us to know a thousand years before Jesus stepped on the earth in human form, somebody was, was prophesying the way he would die. And for us to be thinking the entire time, all that we're going to look at that he endured, this, this was for me. That Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And to know that, that part of that joy was him desiring the eternal relationship that cross was going to make possible between me and him. Me, for me. What? Amazing. Okay? And so we know, he says, uh, verse 11, Be not far from me, trouble is near, for there is none to help. We know that Jesus was abandoned by most of his disciples and followers at his crucifixion. There's uh, a part where he, he says to John, uh, behold your mother, and kind of calls John and, and Mary to take care of each other, but there's, there's not a big crowd of his followers standing there at, at the base of the cross. And, and at least initially, 
everybody dipped out, okay? Um, let me read you this, Mark 14, 48. This is the end of the, the garden scene. Uh, the, the troops have come to get him. Judas has led them in, in betraying Jesus. And this is what Jesus says at the end of that interaction. He says, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted him and fled. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan was a, it was a fertile area uh, nearby and, and the cattle were known because of that fertility for being very big and being powerful. And they were, that's not unlike the powerful people, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees who conspired to have Jesus murdered in their attempt to protect their power. If you remember, it wasn't that long ago we worked through the book of Mark and we saw that. It's not that long ago that we worked through the book of Galatians and we saw the the disciples and the followers of of this crew, right? And how they very much were concerned about the fact that as as far as they knew it, their interpretations of Old Testament law and and their ability to get people to adhere to that, that that was a form of control. They had power. And when Jesus came and started to say wild stuff that seemed to contradict them, they felt this pulling away of that power and authority. And that's a lot of what motivated them to get the Romans to kill him. Powerful bulls of Bashan. Praise God that what we see in the cross is that no matter how powerful the forces of darkness may seem or how effective in the short term their schemes may look, God always has the upper hand. I hope you're encouraged by that. And I hope anytime you're tempted to forget it in the midst of whatever you're going through, your mind rushes back to the cross. Because to me, that's the pinnacle, man. That's the pinnacle example of the forces of darkness thinking they're doing something. Oh, we got him. No, you don't. (laughs) You got played again is what happened, right? Because God is playing a real complicated game of chess and the forces of darkness are just trying to figure out checkers. Flat out. Amen. Verse 13. They opened their mouths, they opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. So so filled with hate and disdain and pride, these animal-like men and the way they were behaving, they, they weren't satisfied with the torture and the humiliation that Jesus was enduring. They had to roar at him their insults as well. And we see this laid out plainly in Mark 15. It says this, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself? Let this Christ, King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Toothless lions marching around the bottom of the cross, roaring, throwing their insults, not knowing, man. They could have only caught a glimpse of who they were talking to. Man, I think those mouths would have shut, those knees would have bowed. But they were blinded, friends. They were blinded by pride and hate. It's sad, honestly. I'm so thankful we have a Savior 
It was able to look upon the mocking crowds instead of striking them down, which surely they deserved, and compassion on them. That means a whole lot for me because I'm a fool oftentimes. I'm a stumbly, bumbly, doing my best to try to follow Jesus, but man, I don't hit the mark all the time. I'm so thankful. He'll look on me with compassion. That wasn't enough amen. Some of you need compassion too. You know that's what I meant, right? (laughs) God, thank you. He's patient and long-suffering. Even when we put ourselves in a position like we're his enemy, even when we let our hearts get that hard. Mm. He's patient, willing that none should perish. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Crucifixion is generally agreed upon to be the most horrific and painful death imaginable. It was developed, as I said, by the Persians in a sadistic way perfected by the Romans with nails driven through the feet and the wrists. You know, there's an incredible amount of nerves in here. Just imagine that. But as, as they were hung there, legs at roughly a 45 degree angle, feet nailed to the cross, the leg muscles, they would start to give out. The quads can't hold that very long. Imagine a wall set. You know, how long most of you got on a wall set? <laughs> yeah, well, it's springtime. I just remember I'm supposed to be exercising too, right? Wow, that's not the point of this sermon. But they, they would nail, it was very specific that the, the feet were nailed that way at that angle because that put that extra stress on that large muscle group. And then they would begin to give out and that meant the weight was then transferred to the nails in the top. And as the body weight began to hang, almost invariably, the arms would end up pulling, the shoulders would dislocate. And uh, in order to breathe in that position, you'd have to pull up on those dislocated shoulders, remembering that he's on a rough-hewn wooden cross, so pulling up and down with his back laid open bare by the whipping before the crucifixion, it's, it's honestly, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. And that uh, when he talks about his bones being out of joint, almost certainly it's a reference to, to the shoulder sockets as they took on the weight as the legs failed. And uh, there's so much more that can be said on this idea, you know, the forensic elements of how terrible crucifixion really is, but... Um, Suffice it to say for today that it's, crucifixion is where we get the word excruciating and, and even that falls short, far short of describing the agony of this kind of torture. And again, I'm, I'm hoping you are, and this is what I'm trying to do as I'm working through this is I'm thinking about for me. Man, it's incredible. What a loving God willing to subject himself to that kind of agony and the humiliation being stripped down. We see that as we move through. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. It's like a very dry piece of clay, basically. Uh, My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. After hours of trying to hold himself up to be able to breathe, the bleeding and the sweating 
caused by this trauma, it, it would have meant extreme dehydration, surely. And, and we know Jesus was thirsty because it was one of the few things he was able to utter from the cross. You see that in John uh, 19, 28, when Jesus said, well, the seven things he said upon the cross, I thirst. So his body was ravaged from the trauma of this torture, incredibly thirsty. We see this element being described here in Psalm 22 uh, on top of all the rest to, to be so thirsty, so dehydrated that, that your tongue is sticking to the side of your mouth on top of trying to fight <clears throat> for every breath. It says something else interesting here. It says, and you lay me in the dust of death. And this points us back to if, if we were to get focused maybe just on the horrendous nature of this torture and we were to somehow disconnect it from the fact that it is for us and for this, this purpose, this eternal purpose that God had. We talked about in recent weeks the idea of, of the great exchange. And this points us back, this line about being laid into the dust of death, it points us back to the reason, the need, the, the fact that somebody did have to suffer and die and Jesus was the only one that was going to be able to do it, to stand in as a, as a perfect and sacrificial lamb of God. How do I see that? Well, this line... You lay me in the dust of death. It's, it's an echo of something else. Genesis 3, 19, this is commonly known as, as the curse. This is after Adam and Eve decide the devil's ideas are better than God's ideas. They decide that the temptation to believe that God is withholding some good thing from them and so that they need to take initiative and decide for themselves what is right and wrong and go ahead and take and eat of that fruit. This is a part of the consequences of that that God speaks out in Genesis 3, starting in verse 19. This, he's talking to Adam specifically. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so here we see part of the great exchange being pointed to again, right? Because what should happen for all of us is to be laid down into the dust, as a result of our sin and rebellion against God. That is the consequence. The wages of sin is death, both temporally and eternally. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus allowed himself to be laid into the dust of death, permanent death, instead of all of us having to. The, the great news is that though he was laid down in that dust, he stood back up again setting the precedent for what we will do with following him by faith, right? That we may lay down in this life, we will rise. That's the great hope of the Christian, right? What Jesus did, he's the firstborn. He's the one that went first. I'm following after him. So though I may die, I am going to rise. I'm going to get to spend eternity with the God who loves me this much. God willing to go to these kind of lengths to forgive me, to rescue me, to redeem me. Purchase me away from my own foolishness and rebellion. To love me into his kingdom forever. We should go to the dust and stop. But we won't because Jesus went for us. Whew. Come on. Let that, let that sit on you right like it should. It's good for us, friends. Amen. Verse 16 
For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I don't know if this question comes to you, but it does to me, as I imagine and I think through this scene. How could people be so cruel and so savage to somebody like Jesus? I can almost understand if you were going after somebody that was, was a, a, a maniacal murderer or something, maybe still this is, this is to get here, to be able to not only watch this, but to mock while it's happening, to take some kind of sick, sadistic joy in it. How do you get that cruel? How do you get that far? And for someone like Jesus, who walked around preaching the good news of the kingdom, feeding hungry people, man, healing the sick, hugging lepers, how? And part of the answer is, is in how we see this mirror that I told you about. Why is it that when prophetically, David is, is pointing us to the, these, these people perpetrating this against Christ, that there's all these animal references. Why is that? He could have said, there's evil people around me. He's talking about strong bulls and lions and dogs, right? Most of you know that in ancient Israel, dogs, it wasn't like Fido now, okay? That wasn't the family pet. Dogs ran around in packs. They were scavengers. Think more hyenas than not in look necessarily. I'm just talking in behavior, Okay, dogs were not seen as good, right? Like they are now, particularly in 2022 America. I mean, we almost venerated dogs. Let me not get off on this. <laughs> Lord Jesus, help us. I don't have a problem with your dog. It's all, that's great. Don't, just don't mind me. <laughs> but how do you get that way? Well, here's, here's friends, what I, as I was praying about that, particularly working through this, I think the Lord showed me this reality. Here's the thing. To to deny our creator, how do you get this animal-like? To deny our creator is to deny our humanity. Because the very essence of being human is that we alone among God's creation were made in his image. How do you get to the place where you act, where you'll trample upon someone like those strong bulls, where you'll rip the flesh like a pack of dogs? How do you get to the point where you can stand at the base of the cross of an innocent man and jeer and enjoy his torture? How do we get as desensitized as we get sometimes about things we should be far more sensitive to? Let's not just let the chief priest take all the heat here. How does that happen? It's because nature is red in tooth and claw. And when we deny our creator, we deny the very essence of what it is to be human. And we're seeing that around us all the time, are we not? You know, see examples in humanity of how we, we seem to be devolving into being more red in tooth and claw in the way we treat each other, what we're willing to do to one another. But friends, we were not made to be driven by self-preservation, but by the perfect law of love. Some of you may know this, man, lions in, in, the, in the wrongs, I was going to say the right circumstances, but it's really the wrong circumstances, in, in desperate situations, they'll eat their young. What does that come from? It comes from a strong survival sense, self-preservation. But friends, being made in the image of God, being made for a purpose higher than self-preservation, we can avoid 
falling into those kinds of traps. We can avoid living that way. We can abide in the perfect law of love. First John says perfect love casts out fear. And friends, it's fear of death that drives self-preservation. And there's a lot of big work for us to do to sit and contemplate quietly before the Lord and to open up to his instruction with the help of the Holy Spirit and the instruction of his word. How much am I being driven by fear? Ultimately, how much am I not even aware of? How much of how I do what I do, how I operate, really underneath there, there's a seed of self-preservation driving that, which is an antithetical proposal to the perfect law of love. Because instead of self-preservation, it's calling me to self-sacrifice. But how? How do I turn off what seems to be wired in me innately for self-preservation? Oh, it's supernatural. You need a miracle. Of course. But God's willing to grant it. He does it in the changing of human hearts when he pours out upon them the grace and mercy found alone in Christ and his gospel. That's the starting point. And then it's learning by his grace and by the power of his spirit how to walk that out. Well, it's not easy, friends. It's gonna feel against the grain oftentimes, but it's possible. We don't have to live like animals. We were never made to. These people became more like animals than humans as they rebelled against their creator. They didn't even know it was their creator, but we see the viciousness, the baseness of it play out at the scene of the crucifixion. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. Though the body of Christ was ravaged by the torture beforehand and the crucifixion itself, none of his bones were broken. It says here, you can count all of his bones. The, the custom even of breaking the legs of those crucified to finish them off, that custom was foregone because when they went to do it, he was already dead. Again, I'm wanting, you to, I'm wanting you to wonder at the specificity of this psalm written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth and hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. Is that hitting you today? Not just that it's for me, but my God. Why isn't God more obvious? Why doesn't God show himself? Hello? Here's one way he has in technicolor, baby. You with me? Come on. How do you explain that? John 19, then since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested of Pilate that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him, that being with Jesus. But after they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth which you may also believe. For these things took place so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look at him whom they pierced. Amen. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, verse 33, and when they came to a place, okay, David wrote that when, a thousand years before Jesus popped up. Now we find ourselves at the crucifixion scene through the writing of Matthew chapter 27. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with bile to drink. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. Another humiliation, another element of this torture. 
something to consider. It's not just the pain of crucifixion. It's not just the torture, but it's, it's even the humiliation Jesus endured as a part of this great exchange. He didn't just go to the dust of death in our place so that I don't have to. He also took all of the humiliation that I should feel, all the shame I should feel over my sin. So it's not just the eternal consequences, friend. It's how we walk every single day because Satan would absolutely be thrilled to keep you shackled in shame. But friend, I want you to remember your master, your king, your savior was stripped naked in front of the crowds, took all of the shame that our sin warrants. I should feel that shame, but I don't have to because he did it for me. And so I get to stand in his finished work and in his righteousness. I don't have to let the weight of that sit on me. And why would I? What a smack in the face for me to sit and live and wallow in shame when he took that so that I don't have to. Why would I do it again? Why would I give Satan one inch when it comes to that? Friends, don't live in shame. Your king took all that so that you wouldn't have to. I mean, he thought of everything, didn't he? He didn't just save us. He didn't just make eternal relationship with him possible. Man, he, he even thought about the fact of our shame. He even took that in our place. What a good God. What a merciful Savior. Verses 20 and 21. I'm, I'm skipping 19 on purpose. We're going to loop back to that. That'll be where we end. 20 and 21. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. As I said, this is basically a poetic mirror of what had already been said. There is one particular line in here that differs from the first set. And it's this idea of saving his soul from the sword. There's two main ways that's understood. One more prominent than the other. Uh, the first is that this is, it's, it's a reference to the, the sword of the Romans, basically the, the signal of power that they, they, they were militarily oppressing uh, the people of God at that time. And so it's, it's this idea that it was actually the Romans it wasn't their idea to crucify Jesus, but they were carrying it out. And so it could very well be as simple as that, that he's asking to be um, delivered from the, the power of that sword. There's at least one commentator I read that also saw an echo of this in Genesis. If you remember when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, there was a flaming sword posted at the entrance to keep them from in an unworthy manner, coming back into the holiness and the presence of God. Because we understand, Malachi and elsewhere, the, 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 the presence of God is likened to a refining fire, right? And so impure things are destroyed in the very pure, holy, perfect presence of God, right? That's, that's part, we, we need saved partially because if we just pop up in the throne room as we stand, not wearing the robes of righteousness that Christ purchased for us, we go in on our own merits, your ashes and smoke, <laughs> okay, because imperfection can't stand in the midst of perfection. Darkness can't stand in the midst of a light that radiates like this. So no, right? But there could also be something to that, that the Jesus also took the wrath of that flaming sword on our behalf, granting us access again back into God's presence. And I tend to think maybe there's something to that with the, the previous reference to the dust and, and the idea of Genesis being uh, woven into this. In any case, the cry for help as he's continuing to endure what he's enduring on our behalf. I told you we would come back to verse 19. It says, But you, O Lord, be not far off. 
O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. And friends, what we see in verse 19, listen to me carefully. What we see is a subtle shift from the feeling of being forsaken that we see expressed in the beginning of this psalm to the fact of God's faithfulness. Let me read it again. Think about that with me. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. That's a different phrase than my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as you'll see, as we continue through this psalm, this really is a pivot point because next week we're going to see what we see as a subtle shift here becomes a 180 degree turn as the celebration of God's faithful deliverance begins to be laid out. I just want us to be aware of this reality. The beginning of the psalm, enduring what the master was enduring. There was a feeling of God forsaking me. And I'm so thankful that the Bible is honest even about the son of God himself being able to express that this feels that way. But we only make it 20-ish verses before the pivot back in our attention and our heart posture is pointed to that yes, we may feel forsaken, but the fact is that God is always faithful. Though we may feel forsaken, that never can actually be what's going on because God can't forsake those whom he loves. God can't fail to keep his promises. God can't fail to deliver. His hand is too mighty. His character too perfect. He's holy, blameless. And, and these are all the reasons and so many more that he alone stands worthy of our adoration and our worship, our allegiance. He's the only one. Anybody else I give that to, myself or anything else, it's gonna, it's gonna fall short. It doesn't, it doesn't deserve it, but he does, friends. He does. Praise God, but you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. And so friends, perhaps you've felt forsaken or you began down that road and I'm just, I'm calling your attention to the elements of this psalm. I'm calling your attention to the fact that Jesus got the closest to feeling the full wrath and, and actually being forsaken by God. But even in that, it, it wasn't full and it wasn't final. It was, it was a due punishment being poured out so that ultimately he could rise and then lead us into redemption and relationship that was the plan all along. We messed up the middle part with our sin and rebellion, but my God, we couldn't derail what God's heart has been from the beginning, that he would have us, his sons and daughters. Aren't you grateful? I sure hope so. I am. May we live in light of it. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, God. Thank you. Thank you in your great wisdom for moving the pen of the psalmist as a prophet. Lord, there are so many attacks upon you and your word. There's so many uh, seemingly legitimate attacks against believing in you and trusting you. And there's, there's so many that would 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 make it seem so unreasonable for us to think that you are real and you are doing all that you said you would do. But Lord, it's, it's all the times like this and so many other things, but it just, it's, it's a help to us. Thank you for knowing, 
Lord, we, we, we shouldn't need this to trust you. We should, Romans 1 says we should be able to look at creation and, and, and begin clamoring for who is it we worship for this. But Lord, sometimes in our foolishness, we, we do need the additional help. We do need you to reveal yourself. Thank you for doing that through your word in such a real way. Thank you. The pen of David wrote these words a thousand years before the master came and suffered as they described. Thank you for giving us this window that we don't necessarily get through the gospels of the the inner turmoil of our savior as he paid the price to save us. Lord, help us to feel that as we should feel it. Help us to apply it. That, That he would take all of that, that he would take the pain and he would take the shame and every bit of it. He would drink the full cup down to the bottom of your wrath so that we wouldn't have to. That he would be subjected to laying down in the dust of death so that we don't have to. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Help us. We are often distracted. We are often tempted for this gospel, these these basic precious truths to become not precious to us anymore. Help us to fight against that by the power of your spirit. May we be overcome and in awe, able to walk in a manner worthy of the name of Christ in light of these beautiful truths forever. May our worship be informed and be fueled by ever-growing gratitude for all that you've done and all that you're doing. You are holy. You stand alone in worth and might and majesty. We honor you. We love you. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch.org